Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to interview number 20 in our regular series of Meet the Education Researcher podcasts. My name is Neil Selwyn and I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. So the aim of these recordings is simple. We're going to spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by Joanne Deppler, a Professor of Inclusive Education in the faculty. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Neil. So first off, inclusive education is a broad field. What are your particular areas of interest? That's a great question because inclusive education is probably poorly and conceptualised and understood. Um, and it's understood differently by different professionals. And that probably arises from the fact that it um, has come from special education. Personally, I also come from psychology and special education background, so I have sort of transversed those differences as I've come to inclusive ed. My particular focus is working with disadvantaged children, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicity, um, and vulnerable children. And I do it in the context of industry partnerships. So all of my work is typically focused on improving practice with teachers and other health professionals, but in the context of system-level partnerships, mm. both internationally and domestically. So what sort of industry partner, and industry is probably the wrong word to use, what sort of partners do you, are you working with? For two ARCs, so for six years, I had a partnership with Catholic Education that initially focused on primary and secondary schools. We worked within the standards context um, using things like NAPLAN to stimulate conversations around teachers and health professionals to focus on the priorities for their particular school, but also to work with networks. And so there's always two agendas. There's the, the context, the larger political context, and obviously your partner, which is very much standards reform. And then there's the particularities of the individual schools and their context and focusing on their needs and so priorities. Academics are under a huge pressure to get ARC, so national, you know, Australian Research Council bids with industry partners. You've made it sound very easy. It's a very difficult thing to do. So how did you come about to work up a partnership with the Catholic Education Authorities in order to get a big grant like that? So with Catholic Education... I conducted uh, a series of professional development and I was contracted at the end of that. And that was basically to use the train the trainer model. Now, that was a hard thing to do because typically, as you would know, professional development is pretty ineffective mm. in terms of changing practices in schools. I was really fortunate to uh, work with a partner who really believed in the kind of approach I was going. And you have to remember that at that time, the concept of using data to improve schooling, nobody was doing. Now we've got everyone in town yeah, yeah. doing that kind of thing. But he really believed in that. So all of the alignment was there for that kind of work. But also you could be bothered to do the little bit of professional development work in the first instance. Yeah, which I did that for a whole events. year. Um, probably uh, not much um, remuneration. And at the time, that kind of work engagement was not considered very valuable by yeah. the faculty or by the university. The only kind of research was, you know, formal um, competitive funding, yeah. um, ARCs, etc. 
So then the following year, they wanted to do it again. And I just said, let's not pay for PD. Let's use the PD and develop a really good ARC. But these grants don't come from nowhere. That's the, that's the main the main point. I mean, you, you talked about working on an international basis as well outside Victoria. I mean, you've done research in countries like Ukraine and India and the Pacific region. I'm wondering, what do you gain from researching internationally? Well, I guess th- this work... Um, stems from my passion, not just from creating a career trajectory. So you go where you can do the work. So with the Canadian one, it was a CEDA grant, which is like an ARC grant, uh, and they were giving them in inclusive education with international partners, and there were partners on the list. And my Canadian, uh, Tim Lorman, first doctoral student I had in Alberta, there is a high proportion of Ukrainians and um, they were linked to Ukraine. And so we applied for a CEDA grant um, with some other Canadian colleagues and we got it. And just to show you the disparity between what some people think of inclusive education is and others, um, the group of people that we worked with were from the Institute of Defectology. (laughs) So, you know, there was a completely different starting point, very challenging. But do you know, um, we wrote a book in 2010 on inclusive education for teachers. They translated that book into Ukrainian and they still use it for their teacher education. And they didn't use the term defectology? No. Excellent. I I was going to ask you about the limits of working. It sounds very exotic working in Ukraine, working in India. But what do you lose in terms of, I've written down here, language and cultural understanding. And there must be lots of obstacles in actually making sense of things when you work um, outside Australia? Loads, loads. Um, I guess what underpins it is starting from the culture, starting from the values of the people that you're working at Mm. and listening to those in the context, you know, multiple voices, students, parents, local community leaders, which is no different to the national project, except that I don't know the context as well. But I try not to make that assumption with local context either. No, no. Let's use local resources and local understandings and try to go from there. But yes, it is challenging. It is really challenging, even when people speak English. In the in the Pacific project, just a little example of that was there were some politicians who were engaged in this inclusive education project. Well, how can I put this diplomatically? For, for less than uh, authentic reasons around improving education. Mm. And so some of the solutions that were posited by others, like, you know, we need to have big data sets and to understand whether kids are actually being going into schools without understanding that in some of the villages, they didn't even have the infrastructure to get to a school. Yeah, yeah. Much less collect data about how many people were attending or not. You know, so I think it can become, it can become quite confronting um, when we started in Bangladesh, you know, there were hardly any girls in school past, you know, the initial grades or didn't attend at all. And that was great. You know, the, the whole approach, not just because of us, but other efforts increased and girls were in school. But then it was a matter of keeping boys in school who were leaving to go work in factories. And it was fine to sit on our kind of Western lofty seats and say, that's child labor, that's this, that's that. But those families depended on those children working yeah, yeah. to eat. So it's it's really confronting. It's very messy. But, you know, two steps forward. 
And one also step there. you're learning probably <laughs> as much as you would if you were kind of researching it. You're learning a huge amount from doing this research oh, absolutely. yourself. Yeah. Joseph and I in Ghana, we just developed some amazing new research methods in order to understand the context there. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously social disadvantage and all these issues are not going to go away. I'm really interested in terms of the issues that are emerging on the horizons. I mean, what are the specific issues that you foresee as being really important in the future for inclusive education? I mean, in 10 years time, what things are going to be keeping people in the field busy? One of the things I'm really interested is in interdisciplinary um, collaboration. And I've tried to incorporate that in almost everything that I do. Um, But psychology and other health professionals' understandings and perspectives about students arise from um, behavioral, neuropsychological and developmental approaches. Um, And so difference is thought of as not normal, Mm. often from a bell curve kind of statistical thinking. And that that's difficult. It's pervasive. Um, It's often linked to funding, despite the fact that there are a lot of differences with any diagnostic category. They're impacted culturally. And if you look at the states, you find that a disproportionate number of blacks are in diagnostic categories, and here it's Indigenous. And there's just, there are so many complexities around those. However, they are the ones that still operate and that are linked to funding. And not every psychologist operates in the same way, nor speech path. So it's important for me to maintain my license as a psychologist to be able to have a platform for critique, but also to look for ways to collaborate. And I think in the future, for no other than an economic reason, we can't afford to keep funding education in silos and social welfare over here and then psychology, et cetera, Mm. and health. So we need to find ways to work together and to use common language to support schools, um, for starters. And secondly, I think that neuroscience has a lot to contribute to this field and not as recipes for practice, but of ways of thinking about how do brains change? In what context do they change? And how can we better understand that? And I, was, I was going to ask you about neuro being this kind of umbrella, which is just coming down onto education. It's mm. really difficult to see what education researchers can actually add to what neuroeducation is. I mean, how, are you beginning to engage with neuro issues or... I think that's one of the biggest things in autism. That was another project that I had with the department is that rather than thinking of autism as this kind of fixed, immutable condition, you know, we understand that brains change in relation to the kinds of teaching and things. And so you can look at children, for example, who learn to read. Their brains are different after they learn to read than prior to. So I think that understanding the way in which certain learning environments impact brains and having the technology to be able to see that, neuroscience people need to work with educators in order to understand how to make that more effective. So, yeah, I think that's a really important way forward. Absolutely. It's a fast-changing area. And as you say, there's a hell of a lot of stuff that we have to keep learning about ourselves. Yeah, and we we need to stop operating in fixed ways that come from our professional paradigms and think in flexible ways and and think about how to collaborate with others to benefit um, the, the context that we're working with. So just a couple more prosaic questions about our day-to-day job as yep. academics. I mean, you've worked a lot with doctoral students. In fact, you were the Dean of Higher Degrees in Research. So, I mean, you've seen the best and the worst of PhD supervision. 
I mean, after all that time, what are the key factors that you've kind of worked out are, are, are key to getting through the PhD successfully, both as a student or as a supervisor? Yeah, that's a really complex question. I guess personally, I think that the main characteristic for success in doctorate is um, persistence more than anything. And students who come in, regardless of where they come in cognitively or their skill base, I think if they are determined to spend time learning, reading, writing, and getting through this piece of research, they will. Um, Having said that, I think that there are supervisors who are really good researchers, but who are not really necessarily good supervisors. Mm. And what I mean by that is, I think you have to have a sense of where your student is at in order to take them to the next step, unless you're just going to do it for them. And there are people who come from an undergraduate degree and who have good memories and who have been highly successful in subjects where they've been organized by a lecturer and given assignments and they could jump through all those hoops and get HDs. But they don't know or understand what it is to think conceptually, generate problems, not just solve other people's problems, but generate problems and act on those. And so they engage in the PhD in a kind of linear way. And if the supervisors drag them through, then they end up trying to analyze their findings and at the discussion end, really ill-equipped to do the task. And I think that's the most frustrating thing. So some of them do get through anyway, but, you know, there are all kinds of ethical issues that pervade all of that work. And I found from the beginning of being AD to the end of being AD, maybe that's part of the, <laughs> the process of holding that kind of position, but I felt the more I knew, the less I knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't really teach that kind of stuff. You can't teach a student to be persistent and you can't teach a supervisor to be, as you say, kind of... And flexible. Yeah, you know, yeah. flexibility is the other thing. Students need to be flexible. Supervisors need to be flexible. Um, I, I think it would be really good in some ways if we took uh, a team approach to supervision and didn't expect every supervisor or supervisory team to be everything for every yeah. student. Finally, finally, um, we've talked a lot about what you've done and we've talked a lot about what you're thinking about at the moment. What's coming up of the future? Have you got any big plans for world domination or even just a research <laughs> project or a book? What, well, what are you doing um, next? This year I've spent quite a bit of time um, working on models of student support. Um, because of the nationally consistent collection of data, the way in which uh, students with disabilities are going to be funded is different. And so the Catholic education system has took a critical look at um, how they fund and how they're going to fund and how they're going to support teachers. So um, I've done the qual component of a study on uh, teacher's age, teaching assistants in various schools, yeah, schools yeah. that have none and schools that have loads. Um, and done desktop review and really looked at what are the different ways in which support operates. And after the new year, um, Umesh and I will construct a survey and run it across Victoria and, and have a look at that. I think one of the things that's been nice about working with Catholic Ed is because they, they have a principle of subsidiarity, which means they defer to the lowest level. So they're less top-down and they have more freedom in developing unique approaches. So there is more variation across, and some of that's brilliant. Mm. So it's it's kind of hard from having processes that will generalize from context to context and be sustained 
and at the same time creating environments where teachers and schools and systems feel free to innovate and use evidence to improve what they're doing. Yeah, so trying to make a difference, keeping yourself interested, always working in different ways. Yeah. Sounds like a good job. (laughs) Thanks ever so much. It's been really, really interesting to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Thank you, Neil.